You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. This week, as we relaunch Real Vision Publications as Think Tank, we bring you the insights of three of our regular contributors. Malia Bengali of MB Commodity Corner is going to talk to us about the base metal markets and China. This year, I think China's main strategy has to keep its GDP growth around 6.5%. And this year, I don't think many people will agree, but they're probably closer to 68 to maybe 7.2% based on all the economic data. Tony Greer of TG Macro is going to look into the situation in Saudi Arabia and give us a sense of how that might affect the oil markets. The oil market is fascinating. It's going to be really interesting into the end of the year with the Saudi Arabia story. You know, I think that King Salman is honestly trying to get the kingdom of Saudi Arabia into the 21st century. And Larry McDonald of the Bear Traps Report is going to take a stab at explaining the Trump tax plan. There's some developments in the last 48 hours on the Hill that are disturbing and the market is starting to sense them. There's all types of indications in the market that there's something that there's kind of tectonic plates are shifting. This week on Adventures in Finance, the Think Tank. Today is the 16th of November 2017 and welcome to episode 42 of Adventures in Finance. I have two gentlemen to my right this week. First of all, trusty producer, James. How are you, mate? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? Uh, I am on tenterhooks to find out the latest Twitter follower update. Have we reached, uh, have we gone up or down this week? I'm, there's going to be a point when they go down. I'm convinced of it. Well, I'm almost convinced myself, but no, we are up to 285 followers. 285. This could be the week we crack the big 286. You'd never know. <laughs> you never know. I, I guess the key question, James, on the Twitter follower front, is your mum still following you? I actually haven't even checked if she is or not. I, she's not a Twitter person. I, I think she just kind of figured out Facebook. Okay. Well, you know, look, hopefully, hopefully she'll stick with you because, you know, I, f- I feel like the best is yet to come. But then again, my mum's the sort of person that'll do a fake account and just troll the living daylights out of me. She's, you know, so there's also that. Oh, uh, that's who Listen, it is. if I see that you've been talking to my mum behind my back. Trust me, I will not talk to your mum behind your back. I will not talk to your mum behind your back. Um, now, joining us this week is my co-founder of Real Vision, Raoul Powell, who hasn't actually been on the podcast this season. And this week, we've got something a little different for you on Adventures in Finance. So it's good to have Raoul with us. And I have to warn you now, a massive sales pitch alert. We're about to talk to you about a new service from Real Vision, which we think you are all going to love. So Raoul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Grant. Yeah, I really want to tell you about something we're doing that I'm really excited about. And I think it's a bit of a no-brainer. We've completely revamped Real Vision Publications. It's now known as Think Tank. Think Tank essentially is a compendium of 30 of the best newsletter writers in the world. We've kind of scoured the world for all of the great newsletter writers and then honed them down to who we think are the best. These are some of the rock stars of the industry, from 13D, Paul Craig's View from the Peak, Stephanie Pomboy and Macro Mavens, Dr. Pippa Malgram, even her dad, Harold Malgram, Jesse Felder, my own service, Global Macro Investor, and MI2. The list of people we've got involved in this is truly spectacular. It's something extraordinary. You will never find anything like this elsewhere in the world. On top of that, we then digest all this information down in something called the distillery. And the distillery is to bring all of the information from those newsletter writers, where you actually get the actionable research reports from these guys, but ties them together and follows all the thematics that run through the markets and applies it to what's going on right now. It's a time saver. 
It is the most poignant thing that we have. It's completely applicable to markets. And I think it's absolutely incredible as a new product. We've got an incredible new team behind it as well. So it's a total revamp and a total relaunch. It's something I'm really proud of. And also what's amazing about it is the price. It's frankly a ludicrous value statement at $199 a year if you happen to be a Real Vision TV subscriber or $224 a year if you're not yet a subscriber to Real Vision. And that's down from $299, which was already a cheap price. So really for me, I think this is a real no-brainer. It should massively add to your kind of ability to look at markets, understand what's going on, and also pull experience from the very best people in the world. I think it's a vital service. It's going to save your inbox and give you the very best information that's relevant right here, right now. The offer ends November the 28th, so make sure you take advantage of it. The great thing about this service is it's going to bring to your attention a whole bunch of really super smart analysts that you otherwise might not have come across. Uh, it'll give you access to their work, and you'll be able to assess where that work fits in with your own, uh, with your own investment analysis. So it, it, it truly is a great product. Grant, tell everybody where they can find the offer. Yep, just head to www.realvision.com slash thinktanklaunch. That's realvision.com slash thinktanklaunch. And if that's too much to remember, you can simply drop us an email at info at realvision.com and we will send you all the information you need. So after that blatant plug from Raoul and I for the new think tank service at Real Vision, we thought it would make sense to showcase some of the talent on display in that particular service. And many of them out of the 32 writers you'll be familiar with from from Real Vision, names like Jonathan Tepper of Variant Perception, Stephanie Pomboy of Macro Mavens, uh, Dr. Jim Walker of Asianomics, and Greg Weldon of Greg Weldon Live, as well as Jawad Meehan, Julian Brigden, and a host of other really, really smart analysts from all around the world. This week, we're going to expand that to bring you some of the less familiar faces on Real Vision. Uh, first up, we have Malia Bengali of MB Commodity Corner. She's based out in Dubai and spends a lot of time focusing on the commodity markets. And then we have Tony Greer of TG Macro, who's going to take a look at the situation unfolding in Saudi Arabia and give us his thoughts on how that might affect the oil market. And last but not least, Larry McDonald of the Bear Traps Report, who is a New York Times bestselling author, is going to join us to talk through the current state of affairs with the Trump tax plan. So let's get into it, first of all, with Malia Bengali. So Malia, welcome back to Real Vision. It's great to have you uh, on the podcast with us. And there's a couple of things we want to talk to you about. Um, I know Raoul is itching uh, to talk to you about the base metals markets, but before that, I'm going to jump in and I want to get your opinion on China because we've just had the the most recent plenum and President Xi has cemented himself um, uh, in, in a really impressive way. And I think that ripples throughout the world, although we haven't really had a chance to see how those ripples Fan out now. What was your take on the plenum, and, and how do you see changes uh, in China going forward? Thank you for that, Grant. Um, so the National Congress party that just took place right now is very interesting because I was firstly very impressed by what President Xi had to say about the infrastructure, uh, the One Belt, One Road projects. Everything that he said was was great and sort of related to what we expected was going to happen. Now, the other take that I have is that this year, I think China's main strategy has to keep its GDP growth around 6.5%. And this year, I don't think many people will agree, but they're probably closer to 68 to maybe 7.2% based on all the economic data. They've had a massive credit stimulus growth of probably $4 trillion, if not more, this year. And you can see that that's boosted all commodity prices and equity prices. Everything changed as of June of this year. In my opinion, I think commodity markets and the way they trade have completely changed because China is pursuing supply-side reforms. We saw a great example last year when the coal markets were decimated and they came up with this 276-day working day rule, and then coal markets sort of rallied more than double all of last year. Same thing is happening in aluminum markets, where all the excess capacity has been taken out of the market, where China is trying to actually uh, give support to its local producers and incentivize them to be in profit. Um, this is something that is very, very contentious in the market, but let's take a step back. So as of June this year, you know, copper has rallied about 20%, aluminum and everything in the same sort of order. What's really going on? My view is that I think President Xi wanted to make sure that momentum is very strong in China to give the rest of the world 
very good uh, message that they are growing and they have a very good infrastructure. But I do think they're cracked under the surface. It's a bit artificial and it's probably manufactured. So I think from now until the next few months, especially Q4, I'm actually keeping a very close eye on seeing what the economic data out of China is coming out because we, our team on the side, we saw technical indicators weakening in the last few months, but the stock markets have not reacted. For instance, the data that came out today indicated what we were expecting. You know, we've seen retail sales missing. Uh, we've seen the fixed asset investment in flat and the industrial production came in slightly lower, but it's not the actual numbers. You have to take a look at the rate of change, and the rate of change from September to October is actually down, not up, as opposed to what the media tells you. So there are many charts I've seen on China Credit Impulse, uh, Monetary Conditions Index. It's all pointing to a lagging indicator suggesting that these markets, these commodity markets and base metals particularly, are very, very uh, um, and I think you know, it's interesting how there were comments made to local banks about how they should delay any bad news or reports coming out of the uh, of China into this Congress party meeting. It was a very, very monumental event. So I feel like there's a lot of good news filtered into the market for this occasion. And now that we've achieved that, what they've achieved, what they have to, I think the real data, the real fundamentals are going to come out. So taking a step, you know, taking a step back of that, I mean, I am quite bearish base metals right now in terms of what we're seeing out of China economically. I think Q4 will see numbers slowing down. Growth is going to be coming back and you see the yield curve, the way it's, you know, sort of the belly of the yield curve is going to affect wealth management products as well. All these things are adding up. Whether this happens today or tomorrow or next year, I do not know because there's a lot of liquidity in the market that supports these markets up. But the risk reward from here certainly is down. And we can get more into the demand supply markets on copper and nickel. But generally, I do think the markets and especially commodity prices are very, very um, toppy here. Uh, yeah, Malia, Raul here. I'm really interested in the base metals markets because They've kind of decoupled from the dollar. They've decoupled from a number of things. Um, Speculative positioning is massive, but I don't see the true global demand picking up. What do you think? You think this is just a short-term boost driven by the credit impulse and maybe using base metals for collateral for the lending markets? What's really going on in base metals here and how sustainable is it? Because for me, it's the one thing that stands out in the global macro scenario is why these things are so high. You're absolutely right, Raul. The, the correlation of the, against the dollar has broken down this year. It all started from last year when you know President Trump came in and announced his U.S. tax reform, and the whole markets sort of, sort of bought the dollar, and emerging markets sort of went up. You know, subsequently after that, but it, it's really not a matter of the dollar. I mean, the market right now is pricing in a massive gold left scenario where they think you know growth. Now, my theory is that this global synchronized recovery we all are talking about right now is actually not a synchronized global growth. You know, you have China pumping so much money this year that I think the, all the economic data has looked really good from the PMIs to all those indicators for the rest of the world. So my theory is that I think in the next few months, when you start seeing data being a slightly negative, you start seeing negative indicators and people are going to start talking about less growth. So going back to the dollar trade for a second, the, the commodity markets are actually trading on pure demand supply. Now, a, a market like car is a great example. It's a tight market. When you have a swing of 100,000 tons you know, left to right, surplus to deficit, it does trigger the market quite a bit. For instance, I'm not as bearish on copper as I'm on, let's say, iron or steel. Steel is a great example. I mean, less than about eight months ago, we had steel companies in China, you know, have a, with a negative profitability. With this whole supply side curbs that China came out in the last year, the average profitability of a Chinese steel company is above 1,000 yuan per ton. So what's going on? I mean, that's all to do with their stimulus, which is why it's the disconnect. And you're right, it's taking eight months for it to filter up, but I think the correlation is going to come back into play with the long dollar trade, with the short commodities, and also with the growth slowing down. So there is a massive disconnect, but I agree with you. Um, it's going to actually come back. Now, the copper market is probably the most tightest market in terms of the lowest um, surplus or, the, I guess, the, the, the smallest deficit. The nickel market, this year is tight. But if you look at the supply projects coming on stream next year, there's a massive supply coming next year. So I believe in the electric vehicles. I believe in the demand for nickel, but it's a bit exaggerated. Raul, these markets are very small. You only need 120 to $150 million, if not more, to squeeze these markets, and you have a lot of liquidity. Take a look at the oil market. I know we won't get into it, but... The oil market is a very large market. Not one player or country can actually manufacture the moves. It's quite fundamental, which is why I like oil. It's actually the true... Uh 
to how the commodity markets are doing, whereas copper, nickel, and zinc in these markets get distorted from time to time and they get exaggerated. So I agree with you. I think if you look at the actual fundamental demand supply numbers for copper, nickel, and all these companies, you're going to be very bearish because even assuming China growing at you know 2.7 percent demand growth in copper this year, the copper projects for next year are around 3 percent supply. So you can argue the market's not that tight to actually warrant such a, a massive rise in prices. Yeah, so and it also, is actually yeah, all. Yeah, and also, look, there's a lot of um, demand assumptions going on based on this kind of fake demand from China or, you know, temporary demand from China when the global demand situation is not great, right? People are not using a lot of copper. Yes, there was a bit of a spike that will come through from the rebuilding of the hurricane, stuff like that. But the consistent underlying demand is probably lower than the market's forecasting. So even if you look for, you know, 3% difference between demand and supply, the number could actually be larger is one of the things I'm looking at. And you notice that when I look at the iron ore price, iron ore ramped up like everything else, but it collapsed. Um, Correct. And that seems to be, you know, if iron ore is collapsing, there's no chance that the other base metals will do well, you know, iron ore being the probably the largest use base metal of all. Absolutely. And if you take a look at you take a look at the property market, some of the new construction starts and the property market slowdown indicators for the last few months are quite interesting. Uh, I read in that China Jan to June, new property construction was up ten six percent year over year, but from Jan to October was only five point six, which means that from June to October we've seen a massive slowdown in property constructions, in pricing power and all that stuff to do on the property side. That correlates back to copper and iron ore and cement and steel. In fact, there was some cement data I just saw right now a couple of hours ago talking about a massive slowdown as well. So I agree with you. I think the really smart people are picking up on this, and I think the liquidity and the people who are chasing these returns this year are just looking to ride the coattails of this rally. So I, I'm on your side. I say we're going to start seeing weaknesses come through right now. The actual demand's not there. And even if I believe in the secular growth of batteries and lithium batteries and nickel and electric cars, this happened about five, ten years down the line. Near term, you still have a supply, a wall of supply coming through. So you have to be very selective. I markets, we know where the port inventories are. We're going to be having, China's going to be cutting steel uh, uh, production in the winter right now. People are pulling back. So that market is truly reflective of what's happened to the copper market. And also, the other thing about copper, there have been a lot of games on inventories. With what happened between inventories in LME to COMEX to SHFE, there have been a lot of movement taking one input into the other. This has got like this has caused a yo-yo in prices because people don't know what's happening. The LME is very liquid and transparent, but what's happening in the COMEX and SHFE, people don't really look at. It. So they see a massive drawdown and they see a massive build into inventories, and the copper price has been moving on back of that. But I think you know you need to look at the entire global picture to see what's really happening in inventories. Um, and that's the way I look at it. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that um, is interesting to me is the massive speculative positioning in most of these markets. You see it in the oil market. It's the all-time record speculative position in terms of number of barrels uh, or number of futures contracts. And you see it in the other metals markets as well. So if you're right and that demand is slower, there is potential air pocket underneath most of these metals markets. Metal markets? I agree. The oil market is a little bit different because I think the oil market is, depends on seasonality. It depends on product demand on distillate or gasoline. We've just gone out of gasoline. We're going to a winter heating market, and distillate inventories are very, very tight. So I'm not really against the strength in the oil market for fundamental reasons, forgetting the geopolitical risk. We won't get into that right now. But the pure fundamental tightness in a short period of time into winter, we oil market supported. After March of next year, you're right, all bets are off because there is a lot of supply coming to hit us. But the base metals market, I think, is done. It's, it's, it's pretty much taken out whatever it could have, and there's actually no fundamental reason for it to stay here because you have supply. So what does it mean for companies like Rio Tinto and the big uh, Glencore and all of these big guys? Okay, so I... I think you're going to have massive earnings. Well, it's going to be, they have to be falling. They're probably about 10 to 15% too rich right now. The, the, okay, so bullish case for Rio and Glenn is if you put it on, the, on a NAV or long-term commodity prices, they seem about 10 to 20% cheap. But these companies traditionally have always traded on a discount valuation. That's the, the base of a commodity company. But if you start taking their top-line assumptions down from, you know, if iron ore falls back down about 20% and copper goes back to maybe $6,000 per ton on average for the next two years, you will see earnings downgrades. So these stocks have got to fall in the order of 10 to 20% to come back into line with fundamentals. Since July of this year, they've rallied about 25% the large gaps. Um, and obviously, that's a bit overdone. Some of the companies like Kazakhmese and some of the other ones are probably a lot better insulated because they're growing volume. So their earnings is going to be offset by the revenue downside. So you have to be really selective. But on the average, like the large cap players, they're not really growing anymore. So they're going to be seeing earnings downgrades coming in the next few months, not upgrades. Fascinating, Malia. Yeah, Malia, just going back to the, just taking the, the, the view 
a little higher again, back to this this China credit. You spoke a lot at the very beginning of uh, of the conversation about the China credit impulse and this massive four trillion dollars of stimulus. Do you see that as being China's way out if things are slowing down? And you're right; the data would suggest that perhaps now that the uh, the Congress is out the way, that that uh, the real data will out and things might start to slow down a bit. Is more stimulus going to be their solution or, or is there another way for them to try and juice the economy again, do you think? I think for right now, since they want to mean revert back to 6.5%, I mean, that's what we've seen for the last eight or nine quarters. They love that 6.5% GDP growth. They're going to take the foot off the pedal right now for the next few months for this quarter to get the numbers back a bit lower, which means draining liquidity. you it in the manufacturing PMI has come out lower. The non-manufacturing PMI has come out lower. Uh, the yield getting a bit, you know, they're, they're trying to take leverage out of the system, which is the basis of their, 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 their Congress party was to take all the anti-pollution measures, anti-corruption measures, you know, rein back in leverage. But that was sort of offset by the fact that they had to boost growth to, to look good to the world. So, yes, they are actually doing this. We're seeing liquidity coming out of the system. But now I think we'll see the real impact by seeing all this economic data that's not going to be fudged anymore. That's a really hard thing with China. It's actually basically on your gut. I mean, you, you know, if you actually talk to any economists out there, there's actual genuine growth going there. My concern is not that they're not growing. It's actually the rate at which they're growing and how they sort of tweak it from, you know, one half to another half. But right now, all things actually point down, not up, because it actually suits them. They need to rein back the corporate debt. If you take a look at the triple uh, A corporate uh, debt for China, Chinese companies, it's the highest level in the last six months right now. A lot of Chinese corporate debt is, a lot of wealth management products are linked to this corporate debt, and they need to really curb that wealth management product leverage they have in the system. That's a big issue for them, and they're trying to focus on that. Do, can any of these central banks really rein in credit effectively without causing some kind of stumble, do you think? Particularly in China, when you look at the, the massive expansion there in the last sort of four or five years, is there a way to do that smoothly? I mean, people, people are handicapping this and they seem to give them the benefit of the doubt and believe that they can do this effectively. Uh, do you think that's it, the case? It is hard. It is hard. I mean, they've done it before many times. We've seen the markets. And I mean, Jan of last year, when we saw the devaluation worries and the markets collapsed about 20 to 30 percent, they came back in and sort of came in with the you know, military and sort of added in all the liquidity. It is not going to be an easy process, but if anyone can do it, it's China. They do have uh, the, the system, the, the liquidity on the side to support that. I'm not a big believer that China's going to have a hard landing. I think there's a lot of solid infrastructure growth. Like I said, my concern's more on the level and how they sort of tweak it to suit them when it does. Uh, buying in low and selling in high. And right now, things are in their favor, so they will actually rein back in. It's a bit hard. I mean, maybe Raul can probably answer that better than me from an economic point of view. But I think China's the one that can actually do that and rein that credit back in. I and mean, we'll see it right now. There's an unbelievable thing that I looked at um, when I was writing Global Macro Investor last month is the household debt grew by a trillion dollars in 2017 which is more than U.S., and that's including mortgage borrowing. It's basically mortgage debt. Uh, and that's more than the U.S. did um, at the absolute peak of the mortgage boom in 2006, 2007. The amount of household debt, what's interesting is also, you look at the credit markets in China, the household credit markets. Now, household uh, lending has exploded. And what's interesting is none of that's going through retail sales. They're actually borrowing money to put deposits down on houses to then get a mortgage. So it's basically a 100% credit market right now. That cannot be sustainable much longer, particularly now the Chinese have made it absolutely clear, you know, when the governor of the central bank talks about a Minsky moment, um, it's clear that that is a huge issue. That's a really good point. That number is staggering. I believe you completely. And I agree with you. I think that's a massive number that needs to be pulled back in. How they do it and how they take that in is obviously a concern. But one thing I can say is that where we stand today with the price and levels of everything, the risk reward is so asymmetric. And I think that's how you should want to be positioned. Because what's the actual alternative, the marginal buyer here? Why would you want to buy it here when you think it's going to go to, what, 8 or 9%? It's impossible. So I think the risk here is very much on the down. I agree with you, Raul. So, Malia, just to sum up, um, given all that that we've, we've spoken about, the, your views for the next sort of uh, six months in terms of the, the base metals particularly, you know, how would you rank them? How would you position yourself for the next six months? 
think if I had to choose them, I'd probably say I'm most bearish on iron or steel, which obviously we need to see that being reflected in the equities because the commodity markets have been quite rational about it, but the equities are very, very expensive, in my opinion, according to my cross-asset models. Uh, then copper would fall next on my place because copper is the best leverage to the China economy. So I think even though it's a tight market, any sort of you know uh, uh, sneeze in Chinese economy will we'll be seeing in the copper price as well. And then aluminum is I'm bearish, but I'm not too bearish because it's a We've taken about 3 million tons of capacity into the winter, and you know winter will be a bit tighter. So in order of preference, I'll probably short iron or steel and then copper in that, in that order. Nickel will be affected, and uh, you th- but nickel... And do you think that maybe the companies are a better short because um, you know, equity volatility and stock option volatility is extremely low? You can buy Correct. puts or put spreads in some of these companies for six months out, and the, the, they are overvalued even versus where the commodity prices are now. So the downside in those, as you said, is 10 20% from earnings downgrades. Correct. That sounds I a very low-risk bet because volatility is so low and it's cheap to buy options. I agree. If you buy six months out of the money, puts in these things, is fantastic. The one thing that will hit you is the DK and the gamma and the vol effectively, right? When you get the call around the equity, we know from experience how that happens. You know, you don't make that much money on your option. But if you are a prudent investor, that probably is the best way because volatility is extremely low and very cheap right now. But yes, if you actually look across Glencore, uh, um, Rio Tinto, Antifagas, so all these large cap companies, you look at the models and how they actually track their basket of commodities. Some of them are actually outperforming right now about 5 to 10% on a pure dollar basis. So there is a risk reward being short in the equities rather than the commodities, uh, me personally, and that's exactly how I'm positioned for Q4. Well, yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always great fun to, to get a chance to talk to you, and uh, and it's nice to, that Rail got the chance to, to stick his beak in the trough as well. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, thanks, Millet. I'm so glad. Thanks so much, Rail, for that. I appreciate it. Thank you, Grant. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. I love Malia. She's a fire hose of information. She's got so much knowledge from her credible career. And it's just great to catch up with her and hear her perspectives on what's going on. Yeah, it's, it's always a treat to actually talk to someone that really knows what they're doing. Uh, talking of which, um, and as Malia alluded to, oil being the big commodity, joining us next is Tony Greer of TG Macro. And uh, Tony, we are going to talk to about the situation unfolding in Saudi. Tony, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it's good to have you on the podcast. We are, we are going to talk oil. Um, there's, with so much going on in the Middle East right now, uh, the recent developments in Saudi Arabia have a lot of people scratching their heads and wondering not only what does this mean politically for the region, but what does this mean for uh, the situation in the oil markets, which are you know, historically precarious at, at the best of times. So I'd love to get your views on what's happening and what that might mean for, for, for this, uh, for this uh, most crucial of commodities. Yeah, and I'm really keen on this because oil's been a big theme of mine. And this whole Saudi thing I'm trying to get my head around. I've, I've got conflicting opinions in my head, whether it's really good or really bad for the world. I'm trying to figure it out. So I'd love to hear your views, Tony. Absolutely, guys. Well, it's great to get the opportunity to speak with you. Um, the oil market is fascinating. Uh, it's going to be really interesting into the end of the year. Um, obviously, like you said, Raul, with the Saudi Arabia story, you know, I think that King Salman is honestly trying to get the kingdom of Saudi Arabia into the 21st century. You know, I feel like that, uh, in the wake of the, um, records on 9-11 being released, I think that they're probably working on their global reputation a little bit as we head toward the Saudi Aramco IPO. Um, you know, they did a great job influencing OPEC earlier in the year and over the summer while oil was under pressure and they, they really stayed with the um, production cut story. Um, and what happened, you saw structure tighten first really lit by Brent uh, and then WTI, the whole complex tightened, the calendar spreads tightened, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <clears throat> so that's already played out. And what it's caused is you've seen a lot of fun buying, right? Funds have gone from uh, sort of flat, you know, maybe leaning a little bit short oil to, to, you know, limit long across the board, across the products, heating oil, gasoline, et cetera. And I think that that's a two part position. I think it's partially because they expect this tightening to continue. Um, you know, if the tightening continues, it goes along with the synchronized global growth story. And if you get a really backwardated oil, uh, structure, you know, it pay you get paid to be long it. So, you know, it stays backward data like that. So that's what attracts a lot of the funds into the oil space. Um, and then you see, I think eventually we'll see some uh, plain vanilla funds go ahead and start buying the stocks because they've been underperforming. But I want to stick to the commodity. You know, when you when you start talking about, you know, a Saudi Arabian regime change, I go right to the map. 
of the area. Uh, you know, and obviously they, they border the Persian Gulf there next to Iraq and Iran is just across the way. In between them is the Strait of Hormuz. And I think that that's a major choke point um, that could potentially get choked choked off if there is uh, an escalation uh, between Saudi Arabia and Iran that could come about, um, you know, with this um, King Salman's effort to sort of, uh, you know, bring them into line. And um, I'll be interested to see how it continues. But you know that we're still um, we're still working on structured tightening. While the market's gotten so long, we've gotten into the mid 50s here, and obviously we're going to have some shell players taking a shot at it, and we're going to have some of the oil longs taking a shot at it. Um, while the Saudi Arabian situation sorts itself out, but I think it's probably made sense to uh, sell something up here toward the uh, recent highs that we saw last year of around 57 or 58 um, in WTI. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a very volatile road, but I think that we can continue to grind higher. You know, the risk is, is that, you know, Iran and Saudi Arabia get in some kind of a conflict over this, um, as we've seen, you know, before in history, when we've had some, uh, you know, conflicts in the area going back to the 1950s and even further. But if that tends to start to escalate, I think you're going to see oil in the seventies before anybody knows it. And I think that that's why funds are trying to get ahead of it. I mean, this the Iran story is a big story for me. I, I've been a big follower of Iran and a big fan of that market overall. But it seems that the new Saudi leader is very, very anti-Iran. And the whole kind of rhetoric has shifted towards Iran as the focal enemy. Um, now, also with the kind of militarization going on within Saudi Arabia and this shift, it's always handy to have an enemy. And I, I worry that... Iran gets the chosen one because they've obviously been relatively strong in the region and are the rising power. And Iran and um, Saudi needs to exert itself over that global situation. It hasn't been for so long, but now it's kind of shifting its focus. If they go to war or try something with with Iran, I mean, what does that do? It makes it makes the short side of the oil market, which I've been more tempted by problematic because if that happens then who knows what what goes on with the price of oil exactly exactly you know i you know the, 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 go ahead roll i'm sorry yeah and what do you think of the probability of that i put a relatively low probability but i know i've been passed a load of research by you know various think tanks who say this is saudi's aim is to actually go to war with iran i discount that but if you can you know i'd love to hear what you think the probability of that kind of event is happening yeah, I, well, I think that they would do everything in their power to avoid it. Um, and, you know, if it occurs, it's going to be one of these unforeseen events that trigger something scary. And I, I, you know, I like you, I don't like to envision something like that happen. I put it in the low probability category. Um, but, you know, the, the headlines in 2017 have been jarring from every corner of the country. And I'm really on guard that something like that could come out of the region. Um, I, I just feel like, you know, I, the price of oil rallying the way it has, you know, a 20 percent rally, 25 percent rally in such a short time, that kind of keeps me up at night. And I wonder, you know, you, you wonder if there are forces playing into it that sort of have a clue as to what's going on. So I, while I want to respect the price move, uh, like you, I want to discount the reality of something severe going on because I don't want it to lead to a bigger global issue, you know. Um, but yeah. I, I, you know, the the, the Go ahead. Yeah, the other thing I think about is this, is if you're Saudi Arabia, the last thing you actually want to do is cause a war because you can't get rid of Aramco. Because if if they're trying to raise some sort of $2 trillion valuation, however much they actually raise in the capital market is different. But you can't do that with a global war, right? Or a, a Iran war, because you're in a market that people don't want to get involved with Saudi Arabia. So I just, I'm just not sure that this is how it plays out. I'm just trying to think it through. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Aramco IPO has definitely got to be considered. I think that it was the impetus for Mohamed Barkindo coming over here and, you know, doing a tour with hedge funds and shale players, um, you know, saying that they were going to be serious about their production cuts. Um, and at least, you know, for a change, he kept his word and that sort of set the right tone. Now, when you look at what could happen, if they, you know, that, that changed the complex around dramatically. If there is something crazy going on in the region, um, you know, th- we're going to break above technical highs, Raul, and then I think that's when you got to start to worry because then you're going to see indiscriminate buying, and I don't think that they'll be price sensitive. You know, if oil gets above 61, 62, which was the June uh, of 2015 highs, 
you know, in sort of a, in a crazy volatile situation like that, it can retrace up to a hundred dollars with no problem. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that I fear could set the risk market sort of, um, you know, back a little bit, which, which obviously it's been, uh, the risk complex has been firms could be between the stock market, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I think the oil market is really something to stay very, very keen on into the, uh, the last quarter here. Tony, I'll jump in if I can with, um, uh, I just want to shift the topic of conversation a little bit. Uh, there's been a, a noticeable change um, in in a certain structure in the oil market centering around the petrodollar. And we've seen, obviously, China now the biggest importer in the world. Uh, the Saudis are, it feels like there's a gun to their head to, to start at least looking at pricing oil in Yuan as we've seen um, the Iranians do, the Russians are doing this. What do you make of this move by the Chinese to to try and price their most important import in their own currency? Do you think this is a secular shift or is this just a noise that we can forget about for the time being? I don't I, I, I think that it's uh, I think it's something that goes along with Xi Jinping's sort of, you know, increased popularity in the global scale in the, at the global table. So, you know, I, it couldn't, I think it may make sense for them to try to put on a yuan priced uh, oil uh, trade, oil contract. Um, you know, it, it's interesting to see now with the Saudis partnering with China, um, you know, that was part of King Solomon's pivot toward China, where he signed $130 billion worth of business deals um, with them this year so far. Um, and that was part of the pivot toward China and away from the U.S. that is sort of shaking the market up a little bit here. Um, so, you know, it would make sense for them to, to give it a try. I just wonder what the, you know, international adoption of it would be, because I, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm always of the school, um, you know, when the dollar gets offered for an extended period of time and they start, um, you know, doubting its ability to be the reserve currency, I always say, you know, let's just timestamp all of those articles and right. we'll bring them back again when, you know, it, it turns around and the dollar gains some strength and the economy comes back because I still think that we're a big global leader here. Um, you know, China is a powerhouse, so it needs to be considered. They've got the, you know, they've got the growth behind them. They've got the, the, you know, the sheer size of their country behind them, and it's worth seeing how fa- how quickly they grow. You know, it's most interesting to figure out to try to figure out what the real numbers are there. And I think that that would be, you know, if they could stay keep their GDP growth up around seventy percent and keep that as a major economic center on the globe, it would lead to a better chance of uh, China denominated uh, yuan denominated oil contract succeeding. I just don't know that they can maintain. Um, you know, that sort of strength for that long and maintain that kind of an interest in a contract in that part of the world. So so is there anything in the oil market you think that people are just missing? Is there anything that you're looking at, even if it's with your peripheral vision, that you think, you know, not enough people are, are factoring this into their, their decisions about the future of oil prices? Is, is there anything like that out there you think that might blindside people? You know, the... the the, the oil market is followed so closely and it's so transparent, you know, that um, the only thing, you know, I, I, it brings me right back to Saudi Arabia. You know, the only thing that I feel like could be a blindsider is the scenario, like I said, where if, if um, you know, King Solomon's efforts backfire in any way, if he causes a conflict with Iran, if, you know, if something unforeseen happens, it's an unforeseen attack, and that causes, you know, real global volatility, I think a repricing of oil in, in that type of scenario would definitely shock the world in all different kinds of ways. It would shock the yield rate markets. It would shock the equity markets. Uh, obviously, it would shock the commodity markets. Um, and that's really the only, you know, that, that's where I'm focused. I, I don't see anything in terms of, you know, the structure, uh, you know, the delivery points seem to be firm, you know, everything seems to be, you know, the crack spreads are firm, the refiners are trading well, you know, everything seems to be, you know, moving in the right direction for oil to work its way higher. I, like I said, I just keep going back to that potential risk where if the oil goes to $80, uh, you know, the prices of all other markets, all bets are off because they're all going to reprice. Fantastic. Well, it, it seems that uh, all eyes, as they should be, are on Saudi, and that seems to be the main place where we're going to see something that may shift oil prices in either direction, depending on, on what happens. So uh, so we will make sure that everybody keeps an eye on that. Uh, for, time, for the time being, Tony, thank you so much for joining us. It's been, uh, it's been fascinating to walk through the structure of the oil market with you. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. 
So as you see from Tony, it really is on a kind of knife edge in the oil markets, depending what happens to Saudi Arabia, depending what they do next. So I think it's really fascinating. It's a market that's crucially important to follow. Away from the Middle East, the other place that is really capturing the focus of investors is the Trump tax plan in the US. And with the odds of it getting passed, ratcheting up and down seemingly by the day, we thought it would be a really good idea to bring in Larry McDonald, who is a New York Times bestselling author and the publisher of the Bear Traps Report. Okay, Larry, thanks very much for joining us. It's, uh, it's good to have you here on Adventures in Finance. Thank you, Grant. Now, uh, what I want to dig into with you uh, to kick things off is uh, tax reform in the US. Now, this is something which the markets have uh, discounted all kinds of blue sky outcomes, and they've been walked back and walked forwards again. But we seem to be getting close to a point where we're actually going to see something concrete, something which may actually pass uh, the Senate, the House, or maybe even both. Who knows? So I just wanted to get a sense from you. Uh, I know this is something that you spend a lot of time looking at. Where are we with, uh, with tax reform in the U.S.? Well, there's two important developments, Grant. One is um, the time window uh, is, is shrinking because you have to get a deal uh, by the first quarter. After March 30th, uh, Washington, basically, every politician tries to go out and get reelected. So, so nothing's going to happen after March 30th. So each day that goes by, we have the beast in the market, that serpent inside the market is becoming, is growing wary of, of, the, of, the, of the time schedule. Um, but there's good and bad news going on. We've been, we've been bullish on tax reform uh, in, back in August. The probability of, of a tax legislation this year was probably 15%. And uh, I think as of last week, we went up to about 65%. I'm talking this year, okay? Uh, but now um, I can tell you, there's some developments in the last 48 hours on the Hill that are disturbing, and the market is starting to sense them. There's all types of indications in the market that there's something that there's kind of tectonic plates are shifting, and it has a lot to do with uh, the funding date. So the continuing resolution uh, for the budget is, is in that early December period, December 8th, December 12th, in that range is when you're going to need to get a, a continuing res- resolution. You're going to need the government to fund itself. And so the House bill is going to pass. Let me walk you through it. The House bill is going to pass this week. Then the Senate's going to start to go into conference after Thanksgiving. And as the Senate works out the final crystallization of truth, uh, there's going to be this, it's going to push into uh, the, the, the CR, what's called the continuing resolution, the government funding date. And uh, there's a lot of moving parts in that two-week period, and the, the beast in the market's going to grow very, very uncomfortable with uh, kind of the, the noise and the, the, some of the noise that comes out and some of the bad headlines that come out over that period. Is this something that um, is really reliant on personality? Is this something that, you know, the, 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 the animosity towards Trump amongst, you know, seemingly both sides from, from sitting outside the fray is enough that they would try and either drag this out or sabotage it just to impact him prior to those important elections next year? Or is it in everybody's interest to try and do some kind of deal, even if it's not one that keeps anybody really happy? Well, the Dems are going to fight him. Um, there's, now think about in the U.S. Senate, the, the Democrats, uh, out of the 34 senators that are up for re-election in across America, out of those 34, there are 26 are Democrats and only eight Republicans, okay? 26 and eight. So there's a lot of Democrats. And out of those 26 Democratic senators, say six are in deep uh, red states. So like West Virginia, you've got guys like Joe Manchin. I mean, Joe Manchin Trump won West Virginia by 70 percent, 70, 70 over Hillary. So in states like that, uh, the probability of working with Democrats is pretty good in those six states. So that's kind of the fallback plan. Um, but the what the Republicans are trying to do is they're trying to work with what's called, what's called reconciliation. And reconciliation is what our analysts in Washington call is fool's gold, because in the Senate, you can only lose two votes. Uh, Rand Paul has six broken ribs for five, 
and you have uh, Roy Moore, a special election in Alabama, that's now looking like it's a real catastrophe for the Republicans. They could lose that seat because of his um, scandal. And um, so this is all setting up for some real uncertainties. At the end of the day, we believe there's a 80 to 90 percent chance you get a tax deal by March. But the probability of a tax deal this year is is collapsing as we speak. It's going from, say, 60, 70 percent to probably right now less than 20 because of all these moving parts for this year. But we'll get something next year. One question, uh, this is Raoul here. A question I wanted to ask was about the um, the repatriation of corporate profits. Where does that lie in this whole equation? Does it have to get done at the same time or can that be done separately? Because it seems like it's an easier battle and something we can get a victory through. What do you think about that? Yes, well, they've, they've put that into the current bill. So they're trying to, to, to get that through uh, now in what's called this reconciliation plan with the Senate. So that's uh, a big driver, and it's part of our kind of reflation uh, thesis. We've been short bonds, and we, we're, we're, we're bearish on bonds for, for some of the drivers in there. Now, that's all coming to, to, to a head now in the next two weeks. It'll be in this year's plan, but what we're worried about is, and this is, this is very important, we're worried about a happy meal instead of a Big Mac. So a Big Mac would be big tax reform with a big repatriation deal. Uh, And what could happen over the next two, three weeks is very likely to be a fallback because of the uh, controversies on what's called these salts, which is the blue states. Right now they're raising taxes in uh, California, New Jersey. So all these things are creating pushback. And you you need those other Republicans and Democrats to support the repatriation as well. So it's it's the repatriation now is, is somewhat at risk because of the SALT pushback. And so we think we're going to get repatriation, a deal, uh, but it, it's very much dependent on the overall legislation success in right now in what's called reconciliation plan that the Republicans are trying to put, put forth, what we, what we call that fool's gold. And I thought the Israel-Palestine problem was complicated. Yes. <laughs> oh, wow, that's, that is really messy. And it's difficult for the layman to get an understanding of the shifting probabilities. As you said, they shift dramatically and without most people really understanding the nuances of, of how complex US politics are just to get through a simple thing like a tax cut. Um, how, how do you think this plays out into markets? I mean, this level of uncertainty and this shifting probability, I mean, the markets have remained relatively bulletproof. Equities just keep going up and bond markets have been kind of stuck. They keep, everyone expects rates to rise and they can never get traction. What, what's your view on how this all knocks through to equity markets and, and fixed income markets? Yeah, so, so bond, let's cover bonds first. So bonds have had a better sniffer for problems. They've kind of been sniffing this out for weeks, and they've also been being driven by the new Fed chair. There's a number of things that are driving bonds. We had a hot, we had a hot PPI number today, and hotter inflation. So what's what's fascinating is uh, for the next two quarters, you have a situation where you're going to get a tax deal. The probability of the tax deal success this year in the next two three weeks is going to shrink, but you still have very high probability between now and, and February, March, very high. So I don't want to forget about all the, the noise and confusion. You still have that. And then you have a, uh, a fiscal situation because of the storms of 40 to 60 billion uh, that will, will be passed uh, sometime in the next two to three months. So in the U.S., you've got a tax cut. Uh, as Rao said, uh, you get repatriation. You get this 40 to $60 billion stimulus. And then you have this... Uh, eerie, very, very mysterious uh, PPI, China PPI inflation globally, that China yields at, at a much higher rate than they, than they have been in recent years. And all of this kind of global ref- reflation risk is feeding back to the U.S. So this all plays into uh, potential rate shock for the, for the fourth quarter, first quarter. And then that, with all of that together, we put more pressure on the Fed to pull back accommodation, right? And so right now, if you look at Fed fund futures, we're still only at, uh, say, over the next 18 months, a, a hike and a half, two hikes. Uh, 
Uh, we might have to go to three to four in terms of expectations because of uh, a reflation shock. And all that will, the Fed pulling back a combination in the face of, uh, in the face of tax reform, in the face of repatriation, in the face of um, a fiscal stimulus, if the Fed pulls back a combination, that hurts equities. And that's the one thing that's been driving equities higher this year is a Fed on, on hold. And uh, I think that net, 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 all of these things together create a problem for equities sometime in the, in the next uh, 30 to 60 days. And does that have a knock-on effect on the dollar? Yeah, but the, well, that's the dollar is in a very interesting spot now because the dollar has been wisely pricing in the probability of success has risen dramatically since that Charlottesville uh, weekend here in the United States in August when uh, President Trump had that uh, scandal, or well, not scandal, but a diff- very difficult situation here politically. Uh, you had the, the White House. Uh, Steve Bannon left the White House. He had a number of things that were driving down the probability of tax reform in August. Uh, and then uh, the probability of tax reform, like you said, has increased. So that's helped the dollar big time. We've gone from 91 and a half to close to 95. And now here we are, we're short term, the dollar uh, probably stumbles because of this in the next two, three, four weeks. Uh, the probability of a deal near term is going to get rocky. The probability of government shutdown risk is going to rise, even though we probably won't shut down, but they still have to fund the government on that first week of December. So net, 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 the dollar short term, next 30 days, uh, the dollar bear, but the next 90 days, we're, we're very, very dollar bullish. We're still in the dollar bull camp, but we need help from Draghi. Uh, if, if Draghi turns course, and uh, the global economy uh, is picking up steam. That's a problem. Net, net, net. The big problem for the dollar in terms of I'm a bull, but I have to, I think, psychologically and as a market participant, you have to realize that in 2014-15, the Fed was trying to pull back accommodation by themselves. Today, you have the ECB, the Bank of England, the Bank of Canada, all these central banks at the same time are trying to do the one and done pulling back accommodation, and and that's holding back uh, the dollar's run here because you, the Fed's not the only game in town. If it was, you'd have a a, a stronger dollar. Interesting. There's another thing. Um, it sounds like much of your framework is built around uh, the tax changes uh, coming. In the end, net net, when you when you when we see this flow through to the economy, how big a deal really is it? Because I know Trump likes to say that this is the biggest tax cut in history, but yeah. from most people's understanding, maybe not such a big deal. And the markets may be getting overexcited about tax cut and extrapolating blue skies from it. You know, is this is this tax cut big enough that it's going to create a mini boom that lasts a couple of years, or are we talking about something that will be a buy the rumor, sell the fact? Okay, so that, that's where we get into the, the Happy Meal and Big Mac. So the equity market is priced in a Big Mac, uh, and they probably get a Happy Meal. In terms of economic growth and stimulus, the, the, the tax cuts are going to get watered down uh, because there's, there's too much controversy around uh, the, the existing plan. So the entire package is going to get watered down in terms of in terms of its effect, and there's there's a problem with blue states. Uh, the blue states are uh, are what, what are they called? The, the the states that Clinton is very strong. Right now, 25 percent of the middle class in New York, New Jersey, California, Illinois, 25 percent of the middle class uh, are getting a tax hike. So they ha- they have to change this now this brings that back a big point to end the call to end the meeting end this call and this is very very important the probability of the, the republicans losing the house in 2018 is rising at a very very fast rate because there's 33 seats 33 in these blue states remember these are the states that hillary clinton won uh, in a big way and there's 33 republicans in those states. And right now, the, the Republicans are plus 47 in the House, plus 47. So that means if you lose 24 seats, you lose the House. And then you have Maxine Waters, 
Maxine Waters is your chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, and that's not good for equities. So the biggest factor facing us right now is the this, this risk of the House. The House is uh, – right now the market is pricing in a House that's owned by the Republicans, a Senate that's, that's run by the Republicans, and a White House that's run by the Republicans. Any shift to that is going to change market expectations. It seems that um, you know, everything is balanced on, on an incredibly fine knife edge here, whether from the political side uh, or the market side, the equity markets, you know, they're, they're, they've been dancing on the edge of this knife for some time now. As you look, if we take that 30-day outlook that you have on the dollar, what do you see into the end of this year? Do you, do you think we start seeing profit taking? Do you think there's one more gasp in this, uh, in this bull market? Or do you think we get the tax cut that reaffirms everyone's belief and, and we go significantly higher? Well, equities are tough. I'm, I'm, you know, we've been much better on, on the, in the bond trade this year. Uh, equities are tough to, to, to gauge that beast in the market. The, the, the animal spirits are very difficult pricing. But it just feels like the credit risk in Europe and route, you've been all over the credit risk in Asia, uh, the deleveraging that's going on. You've got a new giant, I hate to use the language, pig at, a, at the trough in China trying to finance their deficit. They're competing with developed countries. So you've got China deleveraging. You've got their financing needs over the next six months. You've got the U.S. Um, you've got a chance of a deleveraging risk in China to the global economy. And at the same time, you've got a tax reform bill that's probably going to be uh, a much smaller package. So net, 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 it feels to us like equities are, are priced for, for almost for perfection, and the chances of something pulling back uh, and causing um, an equity pullback are very, very high. Larry, that's great. Um, as, as you alluded to, we've run out of time for now, but uh, I want to thank you for joining us this week. It's been, it's been fascinating to get your insights, so thank you very much. It's a, it's a very complex world up in Washington, so it's good to have someone who can, uh, who can guide us through it. And I'll, say, I'll, send you, I'll send you guys our latest report, which will kind of break down the trades within this trade. That would be fantastic. Appreciate it. Thanks again, Larry. Thanks, Jen. Take care. Thanks, Larry. Bye. Thanks. See, this is why you need experts like Larry. This whole tax thing is so complex. You know, you can scratch the surface in a newspaper, but you really don't know what's going on. And it's so helpful to have somebody like Larry guide us through what the process is, the shifting probabilities, and what it all means for us. Something that's that important, when the, when the probabilities of it passing go from 20% to 65% and back to 20% in a week, I mean, that's, that's volatility, writ large, but it's not being reflected anywhere else. No, that's right. But it's super important to understand. All right, so there we go. That's three of our Think Tank contributors, Malia, Tony and Larry, covering everything from base metals to oil uh, to the Trump tax plan. So don't forget, if you like good quality research at a crazy cheap price, then take advantage of the offer for Real Vision Publications' new relaunch as Think Tank, www.realvision.com forward slash think tank launch and just to remind you if you're not a subscriber to any of our products the price is only 224 dollars a year that's down from 299 dollars if you happen to be a subscriber to real vision tv then it's only 199 dollars a year All right, well, that concludes another episode of Adventures in Finance. Before we leave you, our usual legal disclaimer. Anything you heard on this podcast should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, and please always trade responsibly. Next week on Adventures in Finance, we are going to take a look at the retail sector. There's a lot of ink been spilled about this uh, over the last couple of years. And we've got some fantastic guests who are going to help us pick through it and try and make sense of it all. We have Dana Telsey joining us of the Telsey Advisory Group. Uh, she's the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Research Officer, and she's been covering the space for a number of years. We have Jim Sullivan of Green Street Advisors, who is going to talk to us about the effect the decline in the retail sector may have on the commercial real estate business. And we have a dear friend of mine joining us, Stephanie Pomboy of Macro Mavens, who has been all over the consumer story for a couple of years now and has certainly been... Uh, has been my compass as I've tried to work my way through it. So don't miss that. In the meantime, if you have an interesting question about this week's show, we'd love to hear it. So please send us an email or a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, then please subscribe to us on iTunes. And of course, it's imperative that you leave a review, right, James? 
Yeah, it is absolutely, absolutely vital, imperative. Vital. Imperative. Um, there we go. How simple. To keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, please follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. And we are also lurking in the dark recesses of Facebook and LinkedIn. So search there for Real Vision and you'll find us. You can follow me on Twitter at TTMYGH. Is that the dark recesses of Twitter? That's the dark recesses of my mind. It's a far worse place. You can find me at AIF James. And one last uh, reminder to visit uh, realvision.com slash think tank launch to find out more about the relaunch of our publications business. That's it from us. We will see you here next week. Thank you so much for listening. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.